Hello and welcome to Solarpunk Presence, the companion podcast to Solarpunk Futures. Hosted by Solarpunk Magazine nonfiction editors extraordinaire Ariel Kroon and Christina Della Rocha. Ariel and I will be using this companion podcast to Solarpunk Futures to explore Solarpunk goings on in the world today. We'll be interviewing all sorts of interesting people who are doing work in the here and now that will help us get to a Solarpunk future. And we'll be talking to each other about the visions of a sustainable, equitable future integral to Solarpunk and about issues we're curious about within the movement or genre or whatever it is you want to call Solarpunk. Welcome to episode 10 of Solarpunk Presence, our last episode of our first season, in which Ariel and I talk about all things solstice and how it kind of relates to Solarpunk. Next season is very exciting. We're going independent. We're breaking away from the Solarpunk Futures podcast and striking out on our own. And you can find us at our new website, solarpunkpresence.com. We'll have new episodes coming in January, and we hope to meet you there. Hello, listeners, and welcome to our season finale of Solarpunk Presence. Today, it's just me and Christina, and we're talking all things solstice as that time of year is upon us. So, Christina, what are your holiday plans for solstice and around? No, oh, for solstice, we'll probably have a, a little bonfire in the backyard. I mean, just a fire, nothing nothing more exciting than that. Uh, holiday plans. Oh, my in-laws are coming for a week. And so my plan for the holidays is merely to survive. Uh, how about you? Hmm, I don't have any particular plans for the solstice, actually mostly because I have plans before and afterwards. So before the first weekend of December, we're celebrating uh, the Feast of St. Nicholas or Sinterklaas, as it's called in Dutch. Sinterklaas's feast day is technically December 5th or 6th. I don't know. This is something. One is Santa Barbara, St. Barbara. Right. Yes. And and one is, uh, yeah, St. Nicholas. Yeah. And I always get them confused. Over here, they just put chocolate in shoes for St. Nicholas Day, which I that. find completely appalling. Oh, really? Because oh, we shoes. did that like shoes. every year. I can understand what? stockings that you never wear over the mantle place. Fine. But shoes, chocolate in shoes. I, I know what feet smell like. wrapped in something. <laughs> I don't think it should be just raw chocolate in your shoes. That would so, be a pretty gross situation. Think of all the chocolate melting into the souls. I'd rather not. Thank you. (laughs) Anyway, we're celebrating that. Uh, Our family mostly has grown out of the chocolate in shoes. (laughs) And we now celebrate with just a meal and some together time. So uh, let's get into this now. Um, Because, Christina, I want to ask you what is actually the solstice, like scientifically speaking, because I know that it has to do with the Earth's axis and rotation, but it's been a long time since I learned that in school and I could actually use a brush up. All right. I love talking about the solstice. I mean, because who doesn't love a good solstice? Again, there's something about standing around a bonfire in the crisp darkness of the longest night of the year, Mm. at least up here at high latitudes. Um, or high mid, I guess we're mid latitudes here, but anyways, high mid latitudes, I will say. Um, And although I've never been in a position to go myself, 
uh, gathering with the riffraff at Stonehenge to dance in or just watch the sunrise on the longest day of the year during the summer solstice, that must also be pretty cool. And like all the seasonal festivals that we have in so many cultures around the world, celebrating solstices is about celebrating the experience of living on Earth. Well, yeah, you're definitely never going to be celebrating a solstice in a spaceship because it would be irrelevant. Yeah, I mean, I'll be lucky if I ever make it onto a spaceship anyways. Um, (laughs) But um, so although we love to think about the winter solstice as it being when the sun begins to stump to start coming back to us after spending less and less time with us each day. Of course, it's really about the earth and the particular hemisphere you happen to be in, north or south, turning back to point more directly at the sun. Mm. Um, So as you may or may not, as you said, remember from school, the earth's spin axis or axis of rotation is not perpendicular to the plane of its orbit. Uh Um, Instead, it's about 23 degrees off of perfectly vertical. So, and that alignment does not change throughout the year, but half of the time the earth is on one side of the sun and the other half of the time it's on the other side. That means that roughly half of the time the northern hemisphere is pointing towards the sun and the southern hemisphere is pointed away from it. And that roughly half the time the opposite is the case. Oh, so the winter solstice isn't really about a dying sun being reborn or anything like that, but about sort of the hemisphere that you live in reaching the point in Earth's orbit where it's sort of glancing away from the sun as much as it possibly can, and then passing that point and beginning this long process of moving back to the part of the orbit where it will be tilted towards the sun. Right? Yeah, exactly. And so what's inter- one of the interesting things about this is that the Earth's orbit is it's very close to circular, but it's not perfectly circular, it's slightly oval. Um, And currently, the solstice that is the winter solstice in the northern hemisphere and the summer solstice in the southern hemisphere happens two weeks before perihelion. So that's the point in Earth's orbit when Earth is closest to the sun. Um, And likewise, the summer solstice in the northern hemisphere and the winter solstice in the southern hemisphere happen two weeks before aphelion, the point in Earth's orbit when the Earth is farthest from the sun. Okay, so the words perihelion and aphelion are extremely cool, and I need to work them into my vocabulary more. That is what I am taking away from all of this. Well, not everything that I'm taking away from all of this. So uh, that's a full year then. Um, so, So this is another interesting thing, because it gives us at least two different ways to define a year. So we could measure the year as the amount of time it takes the Earth to complete one orbit around the sun, which you'd think it would be the normal way you would measure a year, right? And that's what's known as a sidereal year. And it currently takes the Earth 365.256 days to complete. The other way to define a year is by the amount of time it takes to march through all the seasons, going from, say, the northern hemisphere winter solstice all the way around to the next one. Such a solar year, or tropical year as it is also known, is currently 365.2422 days long, or 20 minutes less than the sidereal year. Oh, so it's kind of, I mean, they're very close. They're kind of the same then? Kind of the same, but 20 minutes per year adds up, with the result that the occurrence of the solstices migrates around the Earth's orbit in what used to be known as the precession of the equinoxes. So with the solar year being 20 minutes shorter than the sidereal year, 
in 13,750 years, the Northern Hemisphere winter solstice will happen at the other end of Earth's orbit, near aphelion instead of perihelion. And it'll take uh, 27,500 years to come full circle. Whoa. Um, meanwhile, the calendar year that we currently use has an average year length of 365.2425 days, thanks to the inclusion of the extra day during leap years, mm. putting it closer to the solar year than the sidereal year. And thank goodness for that. Otherwise, the solstices would also march slowly through the calendar year, moving a full day earlier, about once every 70 sidereal years. Okay, wow, that's really neat. So, but what's the reason for the mismatch between the year as counted from the solstice to solstice and the year counted by how long it takes the Earth to make one full orbit of the sun? The reason that they're not the same is that Earth's axis of rotation is also rotating, as if the Earth were a spinning top wobbling slowly. And this 27,500 years is the time it takes for the tilt axis to make one full rotation. I mean, if it's something that's happening so slowly, how do we know that the Earth's spin axis is rotating? So how do we even observe something like that? So this rotation of Earth's tilted axis of rotation is something we've known about only since 130 BCE or before Common Era or, well, you could also just call it BC. Mm -hmm. um, and it was discovered by the ancient Greek astronomer Hipparchus, the same guy who brought us trigonometry. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> when you're hot, you're hot, I guess, you know. <laughs> um, so he discovered that Earth's tilt is rotating. Um, so he discovered that when he compared the measurements of the location of Spica, the brightest star in the constellation Virgo, with those made by astronomers a few hundred years earlier. And he noticed that Spica had moved two degrees relative to the Northern Hemisphere autumnal equinox. And so he understood that this meant the Earth had to be pointed in a slightly different direction than it had been a couple hundred years earlier. Oh, that's super cool. <laughs> history is very cool. Uh, history, um, history in general. Yeah, it's a pity it's taught so badly in school um, <laughs> that you don't understand it until like 30 or 40 years later. And then wow. the pieces sort of start to fit together and you go, oh, I get it. It's not just a bunch of facts. It's actually things that connect together and had had impacts and impact yeah. on my life. Wow. Who would have thought? Yeah. But anyway, so not that I'm a math person because I'm not really a math person, but I love how it underscores, how this, this story with Hipparchus here, underscores how we developed fancier and fancier mathematics in order to understand, if not our place in the universe, then at least our place in our galactic neighborhood. Because you need systems to understand and quantify, as well as relate to the distance between things that are absolutely mind-blowing far away, right? And this is even true in ancient Greece, mm -hmm. um, when you're looking at the stars. And I also love how the solstices and seasons are all about what it is to live on Earth. So even before we had things like trigonometry, people noticed that the days got longer and then the days got shorter and then the days started getting longer again. And this must have amazed humans from the moment they first became capable of being amazed by it, mm -hmm. as opposed to just being able to notice it. I mean, we have chickens and I'm pretty sure my chickens notice that there are times when the days stay dark late and get dark early. And then there are times when the opposite is true. But I don't think my chickens have ever thought about the mechanics of it. <laughs> you know, I also think for anyone who has experienced the long slog of darkness for the three months centered around the winter solstice at these sort of high latitudes or high mid latitudes, it's easy to imagine that the winter solstice packs a much bigger psychological punch than the summer solstice. Not to mention everyone who gets 
seasonal depression or has seasonal effect disorder. I certainly am affected by seasonal effect disorder myself. I have one of those uh, solar lights that I break out this time of year because I need it for, well, my brain needs it. It mm-hmm. needs all those delicious chemicals and uh, vitamins and I can I relate to exactly that. know how that works, but it just does work. Um, but I think that's why people up here have since time immemorial have celebrated the winter solstice as the beginning of the sun's return. So my theory is that party planning, so like festival planning, is something that gives you something to look forward to and it occupies your mind, which are both huge mitigators of depression and anxiety, uh, for me at least. I can't speak for everyone. Uh, I could imagine party planning might spike some anxiety in some people, but <laughs> But that being said, you may be onto something. I was just reading in the paper this morning. Oh, well, on the internet version of the paper anyways, that at very high latitudes, like in Svalbard up in the Arctic Circle or in Tomzo um, in Norway, so not that much further south than Svalbard, um, people actually don't suffer from much of this seasonal affective disorder, even the sun, even though the sun just flat out goes away for two and a half months. Um, Because the locals are too busy being excited about winter and the prospect of snowshoeing and cross-country skiing and snowmobiling and drinking hot cocoa all snuggled up on the sofa with friends in front of a cozy fire. Um, So they're too busy getting excited about all of that to get depressed about the darkness. Mm. And I have to hand it to them for that enthusiasm because it is hard to go without sun. Like I once spent five days in Iceland in December. So that, that's actually just south of the Arctic Circle. Okay. So much further south than Svalbard and Tromso. Um, so Iceland in December, in December still has days. <laughs> so wow. even though they start at about 10 in the morning and end at three in the afternoon, and the sun never m- really makes it out of twilight. Mm. And those five days, I mean, that was hard. I could imagine. Uh, so even though I was on vacation and it was fun touring around the countryside, seeing geysers and waterfalls and and visiting Reykjavik's penis museum, <laughs> by the end of those mere five days, I was a gibbering wreck, desperate to see the sun again. Well, it's it's like humans have forgotten how much we're tied to the sun and to the seasons and to the natural world. Uh, when I lived in Edmonton, Alberta, I mean, that isn't nearly as far as north as Iceland, but at the solstice, the sun rises after 9 a.m. and goes down around 4 p.m. And it was deeply depressing. Um. So maybe we need to, 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 well, we've got Christmas and Christmas takes our mind off of, off of these things, which in, in some ways, Christmas is also a, sol- a solstice celebration. Um, but what do you think? Should we bring back an actual diehard winter solstice celebration because solar punk's all about solar energy and finding a way to thrive in harmony with the rest of the world? I mean, it would kind of make sense or at least be fun to make celebrating the winter solstice or or both solstices a solar punk thing yeah definitely i mean there's a reason that christmas is a religious celebration that got plonked over top of sort of midwinter festivities uh it's i mean we recognize the significance of this part of year no matter who you are really what what religious uh, or non-religious creed that you ascribe to and yeah i don't know i you know i've never lived I've mostly just lived in the Western part of the world. So I, I don't actually really know what kind of festivals they have this time of year in, in other parts of the world. 
Yeah. I just sort of assume that everybody's busy celebrating things this time of year. Yeah, well, it was it was really jarring for me when I lived in Japan for about a year because they don't celebrate Christmas. It's just not a big deal, which totally makes sense. But to them, New Year's is a huge deal. New Year's is, and Christmas are kind of reversed, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. It's sort of Christmas is party time. Christmas is when you order your KFC and you go out and you drink all night and you, you know, like party hard and stuff like that. And then afterwards you go home for about a week or so and just be with your family and celebrate the new year. And it's just a lovely, wonderful thing to do. I found it very relaxing and peaceful as opposed to over here of what I'm used to doing is having my relaxing, peaceful family time before the New Year's party time. Um, okay, well, here's a fun fact. Japan has only recognized New the New Year's beginning on January 1st since 1873. Really? Um, yeah, well, actually, this is kind of a modern-ish sort of idea. There was a lot of flip-flopping of the start of the new year. I'm looking at a list here. I'm looking for, I don't, I don't see Canada on this list. So for instance, Scotland has only recognized the new year starting on January 1st since 1600. Russia in the year 1700. China, the year 1912. Um, and though, of course, they obviously uh, still celebrate a uh, a more traditional new year, which is uh, a little bit later, right? So, and which is tied to the lunar calendar. That's really, really fascinating. Uh, well, you know, so back in, in Roman times, right? It, the new year began uh, on the date that the current emperor was coronated. Fair. Coronated? Is that the right word? Crowned, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> the coronation of the current Roman Ascent. emperor. So it really moved around the year. <laughs> Yeah. And sometimes New Year was celebrated um, uh, with the vernal equinox. Sometimes it was celebrated at Easter, which is really complicated because you can have then you could have two Easter's in one year because it's tied to the the lunar calendar. Yeah, I mean Easter is one of those fun movable feasts. Holidays, so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's yeah. um it's this having this standard uh, New Year on January first is actually a, a relatively modern idea. Oh. I did not know that. That is well. I yeah, but at the same time, okay. William the Conqueror also said we shall celebrate the beginning of the year on January first. So, wait, William the Conqueror. When was that? That is a thousand years ago. Oh, okay. All right. Right. I, yeah, I feel like that's pretty legit in terms of you know having historical tradition behind it. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it has in terms of it really becoming this this solid idea that we feel like it's been around forever and it's been this way forever. It hasn't really been this way forever. So um, that's just a little interesting. A little bit of perspective. There. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think solstice celebration is very solar punk and it's sort of grounding in astrophysical science and these, I know they're not constants. You just explained to me how they're not constants, but these astrophysical constants, I'm going to say it anyway, and the history of humans discovering more about our place in the solar system and how the earth moves around the sun. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Science is definitely solar punk. 
I also think, though, that solstice celebrations are solar punk because of the way that it's so important to the human experience that we have made so many stories, some deeply spiritual and important stories about this time of year, sort of across the ages of history up to the present moment. And the way that we have even taken some of our uh, spiritual and important stories, such as the birth of Christ, and plonked it down at this very important time so that it coincides with this astrophysically important and seasonally important time of year. It's a thread then that runs probably back for, you know, tens of thousands of years, um, kind of linking modern humans with, you know, going way back into the the Neolithic or the Paleolithic even, Mm -hmm. and recognizing that we used to move more in rhythm with the seasons than we do now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was thinking that too, and also thinking about how solar punks are very tuned into change. So how the environment is changing is a big reason why a lot of us got into the solar punk movement in the first place. Um, But how climate catastrophe is, is sending our world into this time of constant change and not necessarily change that we can anticipate. Um, but also how socio-political systems are in flux, how seasons change, but also solar punks are demanding change and being the agents of change ourselves. We demand utopias in whatever local instances those can manifest, and we protest for political, social, and economic change. We write stories where the world is fundamentally changed or changing, and we dream of futures where change has happened and everyone is positively affected by that. Oh, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Um, So looking at uh, the solstices as marking change. It is very cyclical and it's very rhythmic, but it is true. It is about flux and about recognizing the influence of the environment upon our lives and, and habitats, I guess you could say. I think celebrating the change of seasons is very solar punk, as is celebrating an astrological constant. Sorry, I did it again. Yeah, wait, no, that's okay. I know what you mean. Um, not a constant, but a, a process, maybe. Well, or... to us as humans with our, our relatively tiny lifespans, it is seems fairly constant. I mean Right, sort of about... sort of constant in the same way as you can always expect to, the sun to rise in the morning. There's a yeah. rhythm to it and it's yeah. you can depend on it. It's exactly. it's gonna keep going. Exactly. Exactly. And you can mark time by it. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, In that sense, it's constant, like a metronome. Yes. Yeah. One of my greatest fears is that the seasons will no longer be a constant, dependable, you know, cyclical rhythm, but instead they'll be thrown into chaos with climate chaos and all of that. And so I start to spiral into the anxiety about that. Um, but Um, In a world of flux, sometimes it can seem like the astronomical points are the only things that don't change. So solstices are things that don't change. There's always going to be this, or well, for me, there is always going to be this waxing and waning of the light, even though, yes, I know that these things do change on a, a sort of vast time scale that we as humans aren't super able to perceive it sort of in our lifetimes, but in the short term, what do we have to cling to? So- yeah, I mean, so that's that's a nice idea. So there's there's this this change that is 
this rhythm of change that's built into the system and we've learned to live with it when we've learned to not just live with it but but thrive right we know when to to plant the food and we know when to harvest it and we know when it's going to get cold and we should be drinking hot chocolate and Mm. uh, we know when we should be um, out you know playing at the beach and all this kind of stuff and and so maybe that's it's a good reminder that we are an adaptable species and that we can face change um even you know, swings in temperature and learn how to adapt to them. We just have to get off our butts and actually do it as opposed to uh, just yelling at each other. (laughs) Yes, that's, I mean, that's extremely hopeful. It can be very much of a downer to think about how we have this darkest night, this quiet before dawn, and we look forward to the return of the light, the promise of spring, the knowledge that winter is so necessary for our planet, for our souls to take a rest, break, a time of hibernation before getting to the business of positive change and of growth and of fighting for life. And I got a little bit lyrical there, sorry, um, and a little bit exclusive also. That's my Northern Hemisphere bias coming through. This is sort of how I tend to think about solstice you know they also have a winter solstice in the southern hemisphere so i mean i think it's not you're not being exclusive uh you know maybe the tropics they don't get to enjoy the the warm cozy solstice feelings but um uh, because don't don't change by very much throughout the year yeah And, and i think these sort of phenomenon they tend to make us feel small and lyrical I, but you know this this is the point in our discussion when I would like to pick your your knowledgeable science fiction brain because I was thinking, have I ever read any science fiction or fantasy stories that where they involve the solstice? And I couldn't think of any. Yeah, Maybe you know some. I was racking my brain. I can't really think of much except for The Dark is Rising by Susan Cooper, which was a favorite of mine when I was. Obviously a favorite of your cats too. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, The Dark is Rising by Susan Cooper. Have you read it? I have. I am woefully badly read. I have not read it. It's actually a part of a seven part young adult series. And mm-hmm. I read it when I was small as well. Uh, it's, I mean, it was my first, yeah, I would say it was my first exposure to uh, Welsh folklore and English folklore specifically what was it uh folklore that's extremely rooted in place it uh has to do with um hern the hunter which Mm -hmm. is uh specific to the british isles and a certain place within the british isles it follows that formula well it wasn't a formula when susan cooper wrote it because i think she wrote yeah she wrote it in like 1973 so it wasn't this was maybe the trope starter It follows a boy on his 11th birthday. He wakes up and realizes that strange magical things are happening to him. And he is given a prophecy and he realizes that he is part of an old magical society. Uh, It has to do with him waking up. His birthday is, it's either on the solstice or around the solstice. And it weaves solstice and sort of Christian mythos into this, the plot of the book where he's part of this society of so-called old ones where they have to fight back these dark powers and these powers grow as the 12 days of Christmas keep going forward. So it starts on the solstice and then 
progresses throughout the 12 days. I believe there, it's been a long time since I've read it, there's a large plot point of a snowstorm. It's just a very, it's a very fun book to read in the winter because it's very nostalgic for a lot of northern hemispherical phenomena around the winter, such as as snow and being snowed in, being alone in a dead world or not a dead world, a dormant world, and feeling that there is a certain power underneath all of the snow that you can tap into. And it's I, I would highly recommend it. I do not recommend watching the 2007 movie adaptation called The Seeker, The Dark is Rising, which departed significantly from the plot of the book, was criticized by the author for it, and is overall just yeah. kind of terrible. It's the way of things. Yeah. You know, uh, as long as we're talking about, I don't know, did you say say Welsh uh, fantasy? Uh, I uh, horribly turned into movie versions. I am still scarred for life from the time I went to see The Black Cauldron expect, um, because I was a huge fan of, of those those books by Lloyd Alexander uh, when I was probably the same age you were oh, when you were too. reading yeah. Susan Cooper. And I, I love those books. I think I, I read Lloyd Alexander after This Dark is Rising and was like, this is just my mind is blown. Yeah. Well, do not see the Disney movie. Just do not. Do, do not. I'm still traumatized after, no, you know, 40 years, nearly 40 years. No, can't be that long. Yeah, it might be that long. But yeah, I I think it would be fun if if people would write some solar punk stories that center around the, either the winter or the summer solstice and what kind of, you know, imagining future traditions yeah. That communities might have to celebrate, to use the solstice as a, as a way to celebrate our connection with the earth and our respect for it and our learning to live within the earth mm-hmm. again, rather than subjugating it. It occurs to me that the anthology that Serena Ulibari edited called Glass and Gardens, Solar Punk Winters, might have some stories that are like that. I haven't gotten around to reading it uh, for my two red to read list is long and yeah, yeah. I'm slowly making my way through it. But the, I mean, the summary says it envisions winters of the future and uh, stories of regular people rising to extraordinary circumstances to survive extreme winter weather. And so uh, they're sort of both scientific and I would bet that they do have a bit of what you were talking about of imagining these future traditions. And these ways that people can mark the change of seasons or the, I guess, pinnacle of the season at solstice. Um, it would be, I mean, it would be good for us, right? It would yeah. be good for us to get out there and become reattuned to the natural rhythms of the planet. I think, I think oh, maybe yeah. we would maybe learn to respect things more. I don't know. I mean, you know, both both you and I, we come from since we both come from North America. Um, we really come from a culture that is based on having completely conquered the wilderness mm-hmm. and, and all the people living there. And I, I think it's hard to to break out of that mindset, even if you decide to do it. I mean, it's really, it infuses your vocabulary and the phrases that you use and your entire thinking of, about, you know, I mean, it wasn't until I moved to Europe that, yeah, that I started to think about, you know, eating seasonally right? Yeah. Not eating strawberries in November and things like that. Whereas when I was younger, I wouldn't have given it a second thought. 
Yeah, I mean, same here. I grew up in Toronto. I'm very Southern Canadian. Um, I will say that uh, there are certain communities, especially in the northern, the more northerly you go in Canada, the more in tune to the rhythm of the seasons and the more conscious that people are of the fact that the wilderness is still out there and you need to respect it or you're going to die. <laughs> so, um, well, yeah, maybe that's because it it is still out there up there and if it you, is, it is. if you don't um, respect it you will die <laughs> something something crazy like like 85% of the population of Canada actually lives uh very close to the 49th parallel mm-hmm. and so is about as southerly as you can be and mm-hmm. so there is that american or well north american mentality of having conquered nature because there are so many people down mm-hmm. here and there are so many of the trappings of civilization such as roads and snow plows <laughs> well and not to mention like the world's largest shopping mall right yeah. I mean, is that still a thing where yeah, you can just spend all winter the, the down there largest shopping mall although i would say in edmonton i mean it gets down to negative 20 very regularly during the winter yeah, uh, but i mean so there's weather and there's wilderness though yeah that's true i mean i you're not worrying about moose and bears and things like that wandering in or i mean in in edmonton yes you are (laughs) really okay uh coyote attacks in edmonton are kind of a thing uh really your kid playing outside on the front lawn without supervision that okay that's amazing yeah yeah um i mean it's only happened since well i'd say since the coronavirus cody's got a little bit more bold because there weren't as many people out uh, doing things and so now the coyotes can be found in suburbs just wherever uh, there's the river valley that goes straight through Edmonton is a huge habitat for a lot of really great biodiversity uh, but that includes coyotes as well. This is one of the things I think we have to face if we want to li- keep living in this really crowded world without driving everything else extinct. Exactly. How do we learn to live with with things like that. And I, you know, I've always been very skeptical of people who complain about wolves because, well, there just aren't any. <laughs> and um, I mean, occasionally one will wander through here and, you know, my neighbors have alpacas and they're mm. all like, ah, la, 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 wolves, ah, la, 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 la. And I just sort of think, eh, you know. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, um, if it's genuinely becoming a problem, then do something about it. Otherwise, you know, whatever. Um, like, you know, I, we have a we have in the past had a, a problem with with um, goshawks taking our chickens, but you mm. know we're not running around saying exterminate the goshawk or anything like that, right? So it's yeah, that's fair. Yeah, it's, it's just exercising a bit more caution. I mean, I definitely, I after my accident, I I held a regimen of going for walks every single morning in the river valley and there was one morning when there was nobody else on the path except for a coyote and I turned around and went the other way because I was like I don't know if he's got friends in the bush I don't know what this coyote is going to do to me maybe he has rabies and just one bite will be enough to you know like oh you know they they have vaccinations for that you know and medicines and stuff I know but I had just gotten out of a very long hospital yeah okay not looking forward to going back so (laughs) I'm actually far more worried about bats with (laughs) for rabies than wolves and coyotes I don't know maybe I'm naive when I see a coyote 
I don't think oh, I've ever seen they're magnificent. I, I, yeah. I well, like I, the ones I've seen have been a bit mangy and hungry looking. So, <laughs> I mean, the ones that I mentioned have all the, the rabbits and stray cats and small dogs to snack on, right? So <laughs> they're doing all right. But yeah, just co- learning how to coexist with these predators in our midst is maybe something that we have not had to deal with for a very long time in our North American society. Uh, I mean, I say a very long time, but honestly, it's been what my lifespan and my parents' lifespan. And then before that, uh, there was definitely more of a shaky hold on. um, Well, so what did, you know, what was the, so, I mean, I, I really sometimes feel like our attitude, especially towards wolves really comes from our tradition or habit or mindset of conquering the wilderness and civilizing it. So, you know, what did Native Americans do with wolves? They obviously lived with the wolves. Um, What was their attitude towards that? I mean, that's it. I would be very interested to learn that because I would like to think um, that it was different than our attitude of wolves are bad and coyotes are dangerous. And yeah. To my knowledge, they coexisted. And but if a wolf attacked, you know, a village or a person, then they would just go and hunt it down and and put it down. Um, Yeah. Okay. I mean, fair enough. Right. But 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 that's different than demonizing. Yeah. But it was it was more like this is a wolf that has crossed this boundary. But as long as they stay away from, you know, that sort of behavior, then they're fine. You know, Uh, they're all part of of this larger world. And so what, what I really respect is that um, non-anthropocentric viewpoint. It's not. Our- and it's not us versus them either, yeah. right? It would be nice if we could learn to share space, even with other apex predators. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, Which I think we are starting to sort of learn about, definitely, but it's. Oh, I live in farm country and everyone here would shoot a wolf the minute they saw it, except it's illegal. Well, as a person who did a project on wolves and was obsessed with wolves when I was in elementary school. (laughs) I think that, (laughs) but also I was a city kid. And so the realities of living with wolves and having an, especially from an agricultural point of view, those realities were not within my sphere of knowledge. Yeah. I mean, I think we really, I I think society, civilization in general has a very agricultural mindset and it's really worked again. You see it in our vocabulary and in the phrases we use, you reap what you sow and all this kind of stuff. And this thinking of, of, you know, the minute you have a catastrophe, your larder better be full because we, that's how we think. And that's how we, that's how we've lived for the last several thousands of years. And so it would be interesting to see how that changes as we, you know, we need to rewild huge swaths of earth in order to get the carbon, all this, the carbon budget back under control and to prevent all these mass extinctions. So I think there's, but also I think it, as you mentioned, it's such a deeply embedded phenomena in our psyche that we're struggling around it right now. We're well, trying so hard to not have those, just you and I in this conversation, we're trying really hard to think outside of our own paradigm. And it can be very, very difficult to do so, uh, especially when, as you mentioned, these things are so deeply, I mean, they're in our language. They're they're in the way that we speak. And so I think not not only do we have to have this 
this revolution in the way that we are living concretely, scientifically, perhaps, but also culturally and in terms of our mindset shifting. And I think that's really where solar punk can come in to help to bring those two worlds together and articulate a future where we can sort of break free mentally. Yeah, so solar punk stories about solstices that springboard into living with wolves and coyotes and everything else that's wonderful and furry out there and has big teeth. Yes, yeah. Uh, To counteract stories like the big bad wolf, right? right? We've really always cemented in our psyche the idea of the of wolf is just simply bad and evil and greedy and dangerous and it was very we need solar punks going out no yeah, not really least... i'm not saying you should go out and live with wolves but and write stories about it but... <laughs> another one i loved as a child was julie of the wolves definitely like it's a girl who runs away from an arranged marriage and then she lives with the wolves and it's 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 great But yeah, I mean, I would maybe ask our audience, our podcast audience, our listeners, uh, do you have any favorite solstice reads? Maybe starring wolves. Um. (laughs) (laughs) That might be asking a bit too much. Wolf-free solstice reads, possibly. (laughs) Uh, Solar punk solstice reads, or just reads that you love to read around the solstice. I mean, I... My family and I have a tradition of watching Lord of the Rings every single year. It has nothing to do with Christmas, but we watch it at Christmas. That's what we do. That's just how it is. So maybe you have a book that you like to read around Christmas, around the solstice, around the winter holidays. What is that book? I want to know. I want to know what these stories are. If you could email us at solarpunkpresence at gmail.com and let us know, or you can find us on Twitter at solarpunkp or uh, Mastodon actually at solarpunkpresence at climatejustice.rocks and let us know what you think. Because Ariel's reading list is uh, is not long enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, well, no, wait, it's a TBR list, more, isn't it? A more. TV red list. <laughs> speaking of wolves my dog is howling at me ah okay well and speaking of the new year uh stay tuned into our socials for some exciting news about season two of solar punk presence which we will be starting off in january yeah at our very own site (laughs) give solar punk futures back to solar punk futures yeah yeah exactly oh can you hear my dog howling at me All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening to us. And uh, yeah, we wish you all a very happy solstice and a wonderful time doing whatever it is that you do around this time of year. Yeah. uh, And eat lots of good food. Oh, yes. Yeah. Very important. Good. And have bonfires and hot chocolate. Mm, Yes. (laughs) All right. Bye, everyone. Yay. And that's the end of our very first ever season. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. We hope you'll join us in season two when we fly free from the nest and have our own site and our own podcast at solarpunkpresence.com. Thank you for listening to Solarpunk Presence, a series embedded within the Solarpunk Futures podcast, written, hosted, and produced by Christina Della Rocha and Ariel Kroon. This podcast is a part of Solarpunk Magazine, which is published by Android Press, which is located on Kalapuya Ilihi, the traditional indigenous homeland of the Kalapuya people. Today, descendants are citizens of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde Community of Oregon and the Confederated Tribes of the Silets Indians of Oregon. 
The opening and closing music for Solar Punk Presents is Water Cooler Gang by Monkey Warhol and is available for use under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. So, thank you again for listening, and until the next episode, stay Solar Punk.